Hello and welcome once again to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, and we are in the midst of an exciting and really enriching series of studies on the book of Hebrews. I'm calling this series Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenant. And this is the second installment of this uh, teaching series. Last time, in part one, we had an introduction to the book of Hebrews. And I made the point that the book of Hebrews is the Magna Carta of the New Covenant. No other book in all of the Bible so richly, so deeply, so minutely opens up the New Covenant. Remember Jesus when he was in the upper room and he had that last supper with them and he held the cup and he said, this cup is the the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Covenant. It is a blood covenant. And the Bible has a lot to talk about on the subject of covenants. And we mentioned in the last installment that there is the Old Covenant, what is commonly called the Old Covenant, which is the covenant of law based on man's performance. It is the exact opposite of grace and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant makes the sinner, one lost without Christ, aware of the extreme malignity of sin in his life. It also brings about death, condemnation, and wrath. The covenant of law is meant to prove to the sinner what a bad sinner they are and drive them to call out for a good Savior. Now, the book of Hebrews is chiefly about the new covenant, as we mentioned, and it is the covenant of grace received by faith in Christ. It is the provision of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about the infinitely perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's all about the blessing, the inheritance we receive in Christ, not because of our perfection or performance, but because of the perfection and performance of Jesus Christ. Last time we talked about the much mores of the book of Hebrews. For instance, Jesus is uh, much greater than the angels. Uh, He is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Uh, He shows more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. It gives us a better hope by which we draw near to God and so many others. Another thing we discussed is that it's important to consider the context of Hebrews. After all, the book was written to the Hebrews, both Jews who were saved having believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and those who were unsaved, mixed in the same congregation. There are also a lot of warnings in the book of Hebrews. I don't have time to go through those all, but one of the things I do want you to keep in mind about those uh, warnings is that the book of Hebrews is not about losing your salvation. To the contrary, it's about all the guarantees that exist through our covenant-keeping God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews is not about you and your performance. It's about Jesus and his perfect person and performance. Well, today in our installment, we're going to look into chapter 1, and uh, let's turn to that in our Bible right now and uh, read through this chapter in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. And before we do this, let's just take a moment right now and just turn to the Lord of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, to open this to our understanding. 
Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your heart of grace, your heart of love, your heart of holiness and righteousness, and that all of these things have been accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. They are ours through his perfect person and performance. And Father, thank you so much for the new covenant. Thank you for this much better covenant that gives us this better priest in Jesus, the better sacrifice, the better blood, the better promises, the better covenant. Lord, I pray that as we dig into the word of God today, that you would, by the Spirit, Father, teach us, turn the light on, bring your revelation that we may see your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, use it in a way to transform our lives, to open our eyes, to bring revelation and understanding that we may know him better and all that you have intended for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, it's so good for us to take the time and look to the Lord in this way in prayer. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had sat by himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And... You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Well, there it is, chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. And let's take some time right now, just point by point, to work through this incredible chapter. You know, right at the very beginning, we can see a similarity in this particular epistle to the book of Genesis. And here, let me show you what I mean. It says... Right here in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. It starts off with God himself. 
and, and who God is, the chief subject being God. So Genesis chapter 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first subject and our first point of focus and our really only point of focus is God himself and his determinant action. There's a parallel here in these verses to uh, what is found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which says this, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now this uh, word for word, the Greek word for word is logos, which refers to an expression of a thought. So you have a thought in the mind of the Father and the expression of it, the the peak expression, the pinnacle of the expression of that thought is his son. He is indeed the expression of God. He is the word. So with that thought in mind as we are in these uh, first few verses talking about God being a speaking God. And it says here that God has spoken, and I think that's very important in verse 1, in various times, in various ways, he has spoken time past. You know, the fact that God is a speaking God is an incredible, loving thought. Marriage uh, experts and those of us who've been married for a while understand this to be so, uh, underscore the importance of communication in the relationship of marriage. God is relational, therefore he communicates. So right there we see something of the nature and the character and the heart of God being a speaking God. And now he speaks in the ultimate expression As it says in verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God is speaking directly to us through his Son. As we read in John chapter 1, the Word, the Lagos, the expression of God. The Amplified version of verse 2 is very interesting. Let me read this to you. It says, But in the last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the worlds and the reaches of space and the ages of time. He made, produced, built, operated, and arranged them in order. Isn't that great? That's Hebrews 1, 2 and the Amplified Version. Jesus has been appointed by the Father as the heir and the lawful owner of all things. So we see Jesus as the expression of God the Father, God speaking to us in these last days. We see that Jesus is also the one who created all things. We see that he is the lawful owner of all things as well. Now, verse 3 says this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The first part of this says the brightness of his glory. Now, 
the the Greek word for this word brightness uh, literally means an outraying. Uh, the Amplified says the light being or the outraying or radiance of the divine. And I guess the best way to put this is that if the sun did not radiate, we would not see the light. So there's this idea of something coming out from. Now you can see a common theme is starting to build here. God the Father is the origin or the origin of it all. Jesus Christ is the the expression out from the Father. He is the one who created things. God the Father did the creating through his Son. God the Father does the speaking through his Son. God the Father brings forth light through his Son. Jesus is the brightness of his glory. It also says that he is the express image of his person. Now, in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's talking about the fact that he's going to be leaving them pretty soon and going to the Father, and he's talking a lot about the Father. And Philip asks this question, John 14, beginning in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, listen to this. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? John 14, verses 8 and 9. See, Jesus, when you looked at Jesus, you saw the Father. Now think about this for a minute. When Jesus was made incarnate, the eternal Son of God was made incarnate, the Son of Man, born of the Virgin Mary, and he grew up and he walked the streets of uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, the Holy Land. For the first time, man looked into the face of God. Think about this, Mary at the, uh, at the uh, Nativity when she looked in the face of this baby, she was looking into the face of God. When Jesus walked into the temple at the age of 12, there was God right in front of them. When Jesus was at the wedding feast at Cana, there he was, God seeing, God expressing, God doing, God saying all of a sudden, Israel was dealing directly with one who is God himself. Jesus is the express image of the Father. It also says in uh, verse 3 here that he upholds things, all things, by the word of his power. And uh, the word here, the Greek word for word, is rhema, which means the spoken word. So, as he speaks, he upholds all things by his power. The Greek word is dunamis, which refers to the ability power of God. It says that he upholds all things by the word of his mighty power. Now, listen to this. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the second part of verse 3. That's a very important word. He upholds when. In other words, it's already done. 
It's already done. So much of of what is stated in the finished work of Jesus Christ throughout the Bible, dear friend, it's referring to the work already done. It's already finished. But so often Christians act like it's not done, like it's incomplete or like they don't have it. And one of the most important things for us to understand in really getting it about the new covenant is understanding that it is finished. The controversy between me and God is over because Jesus reconciled me to God the Father by his blood. There is no need for further reconciliation. The forgiveness is done. It's finished. Why? Because I said a prayer of confession correctly? No. It's finished because, as it says here, he purged my sins, your sins. You know, the Amplified gets the Greek idea very well here. It says in uh, this verse that he accomplished our cleansing of sins and riddance of guilt. That's what he did. All of us in our lives, we are not there. We're not at perfection. Regretfully, we sin. Regretfully, we have lapses in thinking. We fall short of the glory of God. Does that mean that my, my place and position with God is lost? That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the New Covenant teaches. That's not what Hebrews teaches. It teaches my standing with God is solid. Why? Because it's already finished. He already did the dying, the bleeding, the sacrificing, the purging of my sins. Now, here's something you need to see. And this is so important. It says right here that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, for us today, someone sitting down is not that big of a deal. But back in that day, the idea of a priest sitting down was shocking. Let me explain. In the, in the uh, Old Covenant design of the tabernacle and the priestly service, the priests stood all the time. There was no place to sit down at all because they had this continual work of daily sacrifices and daily activity and a daily ceremony that had to be done. It went nonstop all the time. Why was that the case? Well, we'll get into that a little bit later in Hebrews, but suffice it to say right here, the reason why it had to be done over and over and over and over and over and over again was because they didn't have perfect blood. They didn't have perfect high priests. They didn't have a priest who would live on. They're operating under an inferior covenant, but when Jesus himself accomplished all, he did it all perfectly. He did it all completely. And for the first time in history, a priest, a high priest, sat down. And the meaning of it is that the the work is done. It is finished. It is accomplished. And this is one of the most important messages of Hebrews and the new covenant at large. And this is where most Christians are hung up. 
to some degree, they do not understand the accomplished, finished work of Jesus Christ. And so they struggle. They struggle in their own insecurity. They, they struggle in their own inconsistent performance. They struggle with their own thought life going here, there, and who knows where. But when we have this rootedness, when we have this foundation, when we have this solidness of, of the finished work of Jesus Christ, of understanding what he did and that it is done and why it's done, it says in Hebrews chapter 6 that this is an anchor for our soul. It holds us fast. When everything else is buffeting us back and forth, our own weakness, our own vacillating thoughts, the world, the devil, we have an anchor. And that anchor is Jesus Christ, the finished work where he entered inside, past the veil, into the Holy of Holies. Praise the Lord. Well, we'll get that theme will be picked up and developed a whole lot more as we get into Hebrews. And, and I'm really excited about that. Well, let's continue in the rest of uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And verses 4 through 14, I'd mentioned earlier, and we mentioned this in the last session, about the so much better of the new covenant. Over and over and over again, it, it, it keeps coming out. And here, the so much better begins. In verse 4, it says of Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Jesus is better than the angels. And you say, well, what, what do angels have to do with anything? Well, the law came about through the service of angels and Moses. So the, the angels, if you will, uh, through uh, an act of service, uh, brought forth the uh, law covenant. In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, it says that uh, Jesus is better than the angels because he is the Son it says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and again, I will be a father, and you shall be to me a son. In verse 6, it says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn, and the angels worship him. Here's what it says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, verses 8 through 12 are just incredible because these verses are some of the clearest declarations in all of the Scripture of Christ's divinity. You know, the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is God in substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit has been so fought through the ages but Jesus Christ has always been, is, and always will be God. He is the eternal Son of God. Let's read these verses, 8 through 12. It says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you 
Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Now, those are quotations from the Old Testament. And here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, they are ascribed to none other than Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, but to the Son. Note there in verse 8, it says, a throne, O God, a scepter. Now that represents royal authority, the rule of a king. It says it is a scepter of righteousness. And it says, therefore, God your God. There's the expression of divinity in verse 10a. He laid the foundation of the earth. And it says that the heavens are the work of your hands. And then in verses 10 through 12, which is a quotation of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, it says, Lord. And if you look at your Bible, that's all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. And that uh, is a... uh, rendering of what's called the tetragrammaton. That big word means uh, the word assigned to God, Jehovah, Yahweh. And in the language, that's what's there, Lord. And it says that he is Lord of creation and he remains forever. Then in verse 13, it describes uh, the enemies becoming his footstool. It says this, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Now, by comparison, and again, the the, the so much better here that's spoken of in, in chapter one is that Jesus is so much better than the angels. He's a son. He is God. But let's take a look at the at angels. Angels are ministers or servants. They are not sons verse 5. They actually worship the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 6. They are spirits that are ministers or, or servants. The, uh, he, the uh, Greek word refers to public servants, verse 7. They do not have the privilege of having their enemies made their footstool, verse 13. And they are actually ministering spirits sent to minister due service for us, those who inherit salvation. Verse 14. There is a uh, theme that comes out here in these verses that speaks so tremendously about the greatness of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses uh, in this chapter are, are just some of the most amazing things to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, The Son is heir of all things, verse 2. He is the brightness, the outring of God's glory, verse 3. He upholds all things, and the uh, ESV says he upholds the universe by the word of his power, verse 3. He purged our sins, verse 3c. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 3 again. Jesus is so much better than the angels, verse 4a. And um, by inheritance, Jesus has obtained a more excellent name, verse 4. 
Jesus is the Son, the begotten of the Father, verse 5. Jesus is the firstborn, verse 6. He is not, on, not only is he higher than the angels, Jesus is worshipped by the angels, verse 6. Jesus is God upon the throne, verse 8. He rules with righteousness, also in verse 8. He has loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, verse 9. He is anointed with the oil of gladness, also verse 9. Jesus laid the foundation of the earth, verse 10. The heavens are the work of his hands, verse 10 also. Jesus is eternal. It says, your years will not fail, verse 12. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, verse 13. So what's the point of all this? Is it just a lot of lofty speech that has no bearing upon me and my everyday life? Someone might ask. To which I would say, with all due respect, you are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. He is the source of all that is good. And one of the things that's so hard for us to really get a hold of, although if we attend to it, attend to the scripture and look to God for this. You see, when when we came into this world, we were dead in trespasses and sins. In our outlook in life, God wasn't the center of the universe. He was way out there, if in any of it at all. We were the center of the universe. But then we're born again. Yet the mind needs to be renewed. Remember what it says in Romans chapter 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one of the areas that uh, we have to get renewed in is the understanding that God is the center of the universe. God-centeredness as opposed to me-centeredness or man-centeredness. God himself is the source of all that is good. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, this is one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. In that great epistle of Romans, where point upon point, Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, lays out the gospel of our salvation so brilliantly. He finally gets to the crescendo of all that he is teaching, and that crescendo finds itself at the end of Romans chapter 11 in an incredible sound of praise and worship till finally it's it's almost like a grand symphony you know that builds this theme up and then finally you reach the climax the symbol and then the climax of the climax is the crash of the symbols and that is exactly what happens in Romans chapter 11 verse 36 i call this the divine circuit listen to this it says this for of him And through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36. Let me read it again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now notice three things. First, the good is all of him. It is from God. All that is good is through him. So he's the means. 
And then it says, all is to him. He is the ultimate end. This is what I call the divine circuit. And if you know anything at all about electricity, you know that electricity cannot flow unless there's a complete circuit. The electrical energy comes in one point and it can continue as long as there's a complete circuit back around. Well, the divine circuit is just this verse. All goodness comes from God. All things are of him. All things are through him. He's the means and all things are to him. And it says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In short, God is the source. God is the means. God is the great end. And friend, that is how he gets glory. The Bible makes it abundantly clear in four significant places that the just shall live by faith. I say four significant places. They are absolutely key places in all of the Bible. They are Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, which, by the way, is called the birth verse of the Reformation, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38, right up against Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame chapter. The just shall live by faith. How important is faith? Do you know that in the New Testament, the language of faith is mentioned 677 times? I'll tell you what, friend, in God's mind, faith is extremely important. But I want you to understand something. Faith, at least in the sense that the Bible refers to it, is looking beyond yourself, outside of yourself, in total dependence upon another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very important. Let me say it again. Faith is looking beyond yourself, outside of yourself, in total dependence upon another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That is biblical faith. The Lord Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 5, Without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Did you catch it? Nothing. Without him, nothing. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 6 says this, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, how many of you want to please God? Well, this verse makes it very clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. You can't do it. Here's why. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, do you notice the centeredness on God? For those who come to God, who come to God, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith comes to God. It believes that he is, I am that I am, and that he is indeed a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, him, seek 
him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we read this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. The Greek word is epignosis, which means to experience. It's experiential knowledge, participating in knowledge. In the knowledge, epignosis of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace grace and peace multiplied to us in the full firsthand experience of a person, God. And of Jesus our Lord, verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through, the Greek word for through is dia, which means by means of, through, by means of the knowledge, that's epignosis again, firsthand experience of him who called us by glory and virtue. So all of this that Peter is talking about in 2 Peter chapter 1, about grace and peace being multiplied to us, happens as the direct result, as well as his divine power, giving us everything we need for life and godliness. It happens by means of our first-hand contact and experience with God himself. Check it out for yourself, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And then over in Philippians chapter 3, remember the Apostle Paul is talking about his former way as a Pharisee. He had a lot of bragging rights. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was quite an Israelite. He, By the law, he was blameless. And yet he said, I consider it garbage, literally, meaning dung. I consider it garbage. And here's what he says in the comparison, verse 8. Yet indeed I... Also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek word is literally means dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Do you see what Paul's passion and driving force was? To know Christ, to know him personally, to be engaged in relationship with him. You see, the book of Hebrews does so much to help us to see Jesus Christ himself much more clearly so that we know him better as God's son, as our brother, as our high priest, as our king, that we would know Jesus Christ as the one who suffered so much, bled so much, sacrificed so much, and died so that we could be made free completely accepted, made God's sons perfectly justified, perfectly sanctified, and totally blessed. What does this all have to do with me? Jesus has all to do with you. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it goes to follow that our attention 
should not be focused on how I can better live the Christian life. My focus, my passion as the Apostle Paul, the thing that consumes me, needs to be the living person of my King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friend, by His Word and by His Spirit, God intends for you to know Him, to know Him, to know His power. That's what the book of Hebrews is ultimately about. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in this time when we have gathered around your word, we worship you. We thank you that you are so holy and so wonderful and so righteous. There is none like you, Lord. There is none like you, Lord Jesus. We worship you today as the as the Son, God's only begotten. We are amazed that we have been made sons together with you because of what you've done. We are your brother. And Lord Jesus Christ, you are our perfect high priest who lives forever and is even at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we bow now to you as our King. You are indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the captain of my salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you never fail. You did not fail in all that you did upon the earth. You did not fail at Calvary. You did not fail in the resurrection and the ascension. Thank you, Lord, that you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for revealing more of your heart, more of what you've done on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.